Our Father, we thank you for today's service and give you praise for all that you've said to us so far, all that you've done in our midst so far, all that you've wrought. We say your name be highly exalted in Jesus' name. Father, we pray that as we go into your word, that you speak to us, that you teach us by yourself, and that everyone here would not leave the same way they came. In Jesus' name, we're afraid. Amen. The title of today's sermon is, as you already know, if you've seen the flyer, (laughs) is your place in him, amen, or your place in life, whichever one you want to pick. I titled it Your Place in Life because this is the biggest question that people usually come across at one point or the other in their lives. People look for what their place is. Where do they fit? Every human being has a longing for relevance. And a longing for relevance is not necessarily a thing of pride. It's something that is intrinsic in every single person and every single being. And we're going to see that that's how God made it. That the search for purpose is natural. Amen. It's not outside of the box of reality. Everyone is looking for their place in life. No matter who you are, no matter how old you are. Once a child passes the age of... um, when he stops being a toddler and he starts to enter the age of accountability, the child naturally, you don't have to tell the child to start thinking of their life. They'll start thinking of their life normally. Um, I remember when my little cousin, JB, was just 10, there were things that could never have crossed his mind when he was 9, 10. Right? And now that he has passed that age, not by a lot though, just by about four or five years, his thinking has totally and completely changed. He's now thinking actively about his life. You don't teach a human being that. It's just something that happens. And it's how God made it. Amen. So today we're going to talk about your place in life, which is in him, but we'll get there at the end. But the reason we're speaking about it is because the greatest scam or one of the greatest scams in Christianity today as a topic or a subject is the subject of purpose. Amen. I have been a partaker of that scam at some point in my life. When I was in uni, we were so obsessed with purpose. We read, we read rather, The Purpose Driven Life by Recurrent, which is not a bad book. If you read it in context, there are some things you need to know before you read that book. There are some things you need to understand at the beginning of that book before you can say you are proceeding. But you see, the beginning is kind of boring, if I remember correctly. Not boring, but the way that we're taught purpose then, we're taught it in the area of Unwen Uni. So obviously, we're all thinking about our future careers, our talent. We didn't used to want to blow there. That blowing thing is a recent development. But we're thinking about our future careers, we're thinking about our talents and our gifts. And that's how we read the book, with the eye of the external. What you have to give you what you want. And as I grew, 
I came to understand that we're not what we're what we're learning was not purpose. What we're learning was ambition. Ambition that was put in a pretty little box called purpose and sold to the young church. And most of us we would sit down and listen to many messages from different people we invite to school. I remember I remember there was a time when I was in redemption camp. I came from school, and I'm not going to mention the name of the person, but he's very popular. And he came there to speak on purpose because that's what he talks about the most. Um, and when he came, even me at that point, I knew that I was listening to motivation for like 30 to 40 minutes. On the altar, speaking to young people, motivating us and not really teaching us the Bible. And it's one of the biggest scams. Christianity. So today we're going to look at your place in him from a biblical standpoint. Your place in life from a biblical standpoint. And we cannot start this subject without going to Genesis chapter 1. So please open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we are spoiled for time. But I'm going to read a couple of sections just to show us something. Something that we have to understand before you even start finding your place. Before you look at your career or your talents or whatever it is that you've been taught to look at over time. I'm going to read verse 20. And I'm going to read from verse 20 to verse 28 but i'll break them into sections 20 and god said let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that it may fly that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven and god created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth, and the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Sometimes people forget that man was not the only one giving the be fruitful and multiply commandment and blessing. It's not just us that have it, you don't share it alone. <laughs> You share it with the animals. Amen. Verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living, the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his own kind and cattle after their own kind and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his own kind. And God saw that it was good. 26, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In his image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the air, and 
over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Amen. I'm going to read Genesis 2, 7 quickly. And the Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Other versions will say a living being. The first thing I want to speak about today is the irreversible relationship between habitat and occupant. Habitat is the place that the occupant what stays in. And there's a relationship that has been created by God between habitat and what? An occupant. So he created a habitat called the waters, the seas, and he placed occupants inside, right? He created the heavens, the firmaments, and he placed occupants, the birds, right? Placed them there. He created the land, and he what? Placed occupants, the creeping things, the cattle, the animals. This is a relationship that is ordained by God that nobody can break. So the relevance of the water is the fish in it. You know, sometimes we tend to think just about the fact that if you bring a fish out of water, a fish will what? Will die. But of what use is a body of water that has no life in it? Hmm? It has no value. The habitats exist also for the things that live in them and on them. I read recently that some of the deserts in Saudi Arabia are being irrigated so that the green can grow on them. And this has been going on for years, actually. As technology has advanced, there has been irrigation and a lot of things happening in a lot of these desert places to create what? Life. Why are they doing that? Because of what value has the earth if it does not produce life? If these things do not what walk on it and feed from it, there is an irreversible relationship between the occupants and the habitats. They both need each other. They both need each other. And that's why when we're learning in biology, we would see that life is what is a cycle. Everyone sort of feeds into each other. And the reason I'm speaking about the relationship between occupant and habitat is because man is the only being that performs dual functions. Man, from inception, is both an occupant and a habitat. Because man is the habitat of God's spirit. And man is the occupant of this earth. Man is the only being in existence that does the two. Man was created to do two things. To house something. And also to occupy somewhere. And man has to do two of them together. Because that's how God made him. Are we following? That's how God made him. God didn't make him to be any different. And that's why we're starting from Genesis. We learned in theology, and it's true. The more I study, Genesis is the most important book in the Bible. 
Because the more you understand the book, the more you have questions for your life, the more the world will not surprise you anymore. Because man is the only being in existence that was created both towards to house someone, but also to occupy somewhere. And we're created to house the spirit of God. That's how we were from the start. And we're also created to occupy the earth. So all these fishes, all these animals, all these birds, God now put us there to rule over all of them. But when man lost God's spirit, man became incomplete. Because man has to do both to be able to realize his actual function. A man that is not housing the spirit of God cannot be a successful occupant of the earth. Amen. So a man that does not possess God's spirit cannot succeed in his occupancy of this earth. He can't. And this is where the search for purpose actually starts. Because Adam didn't need to find out what he was made for at the beginning. He just knew because he had all the tools he needed to know because God was in him. And the greatest loss that man experienced in that garden after the fall was his sense of his eternal value because he has lost the eternity that was inside And that's what we call death. So the next thing I want to let you know is that God's greatest investment is in his people. And it has been so from the beginning of time. His greatest investment is in his people. His greatest reward from the entirety of this universe is his people. That's the only thing that he is going to have to himself when this age ends. His people. It's his greatest investment and he doesn't joke with it. I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9. I just want us to read something. Deuteronomy 32, 9 says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. His portion is his people. This is the greatest investment. But that's his portion. You can write down Malachi 3.17, but I don't want to read that because of time. I want to show you Isaiah 49, 14 to 15. Isaiah 49, 14 to 15 says, But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. And this is the reply. It says, Can a woman forget her sucking child? 
that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Verse 16, for I have graven you upon the palms of my hands, and thy walls are continually before me. God's portion on this earth is his people. It's you and me. It's his greatest investment. His greatest investment is not in the entirety of humanity. It's in you. Because you are his people. God needs you to function on this earth. You know, sometimes we say God doesn't need you. Right? We say that sometimes. It's true and it's also false. When you make that statement, we make that statement in a in an individualistic sense. Because God said I will raise up stones towards to praise me. If it's not you, it will be somebody else. But when we say that, we don't say that by when we're speaking about humanity. Do you understand? Because in this realm, God needs humanity because that's how he made it. So let me ask some questions. Does God need man to be God? No. Does God need man to function here on earth? Yes. Who made it that way? God himself. And he would not break his own principle. Because God is not just God to us. God is also a God unto himself. So he is not going to change what he has established. And that's why his greatest investment is his people. It's his people. On the other hand, man's only need is God. And please, I want you to underline only if you're writing down. Man's greatest need is not God. Man's only need is God. God is the only one that we really need. He's the only thing we really need. And you might not believe it as I've said it because you might be thinking of your job, you might be thinking of your your family, you might be thinking of so many things as I'm saying, how can how can possibly just say God is man's only need? He is. It's the only need we have. And it's proven throughout scripture. It's proven first when he first met with Abraham and he was renewing his covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis chapter 15. This was after Abraham had paid his tithes to Melchizedek. The chapter after, and God was renewing his covenant with him, letting him know about the promised son and what was going to come in future. Speaking about Isaac and the children that were going to come from his loins. And God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, Verse 2. He said, And Abraham said, 
I'll read, I'll read from verse 1, actually. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. What did he call Abraham's reward? Himself. He didn't say anything else was his reward. He said, I myself, I am your shield and I'm your exceedingly great reward. And when God finally brought this to pass and the nation of Israel was formed and there were 12 tribes and God separated a particular tribe unto himself and that tribe was the tribe of the Levites. And if you open your Bible to the book of Numbers, chapter 18. I'll read from verse 20 to 22. And the Bible says, Numbers 18, 20 to 22. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tents in Israel for an inheritance, for their service which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle and the congregation. Neither must the children of Israel hence come forth nigh the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. 23. But the Levites shall do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall bear their iniquity, and shall be a statue forever throughout your generations, that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. Why do they have no inheritance? Because God himself is their inheritance. This was under the law. But Jesus didn't abolish anything in scripture. The Bible says that he came to fulfill the law, not to dismiss the law. So priesthood today has changed because we are not just priests. We are now kings and priests under the covenant of Jesus Christ. He has made us kings and priests of the heavenly heritage and the new covenant in his blood. But what he said to the children of Levi is still applicable to us in that the entirety of Israel was a type of the entire world. And the children of Levi were a type of us in that in this world we have no inheritance. Who is our inheritance? God himself. Because we are the people that have been separated unto him. We are the only ones that have access to his tabernacle. The rest of the world does not. They have no access to him because they don't have Jesus. In the same way God told everybody else that only the Levites can come to the temple. If the rest of you come near, you will die. That was under the law. Told, was it not the God of the whole of Israel? He was. Is God not the creator of the whole world? 
He is. But he separated unto himself his own chosen people. Through his son Jesus. And that's the shadow we have in the Old Testament with Levites. But one key thing for them, he said, you have no inheritance. I myself, I am your inheritance. So the only thing that we need, the only person we actually need, is, is God. Let's bring it to the New Testament. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all other things will be added unto you. Do you know the biggest open secret of that scripture? God, Jesus never mentioned anything for you to seek second. It's an open secret that we don't see. Sometimes we treat this scripture like, okay, seek first the kingdom of God, then you now arrange the rest according to list of priority. So after you sought the kingdom of God, that's not the interpretation of the scripture. He didn't say seek the kingdom first, then you now seek your family and seek your marriage and seek... That's not what he said. He just said seek ye first, but that first is the only thing he told you to seek. That's the biggest open secret of that scripture. He didn't say seek ye first the kingdom of God and after you are done, you can now start to add the rest of the needs that you have. He said seek ye first the kingdom and its righteousness. The second part of that verse is passive. The power is not in your hand. He's not demanding you to do anything else. He said and all other things will be added to you. So another way of interpreting it is seek ye first and only the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then just leave the rest. It's the biggest open secret of that simple verse that so many people miss. Because we treat it like Oh, let's, let's make God our first priority. But we have a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. You don't need anything else except God. Read this whole Bible. And you see whether I'm lying. Because <laughs> it's not a lie. It's proven time and time again. So does man need God to be man? Yes. Man cannot be fully man without God. Because the original man had God in him. And does man need God to function here on earth? Yes, he does. Man needs God completely. And nothing and no one else. When we're reading our Bibles, we need to read it with the eyes of Revelation. You see, when Jesus was telling his disciples later in that scripture, when he was telling them not to worry, and he started comparing them to what? The birds of the air, and comparing them to the grass of the field. Why do these things not worry? It's simple. Because they are in their natural habitats. 
You see, the reason why the fish will not worry, the only reason why the fish will worry is if the fish is out of water. As long as the fish is inside water, it is guaranteed food. Right? The only reason why the eagle will worry is if he doesn't know how to soar again. And it's walking around on the ground like a chicken. Because you see, the eyesight that the eagle has is designed to what? To see afar. So as long as the eagle maintains its position in its natural habitat, where God has placed it, it doesn't have to think about food. Because if it is situated in the right place, in the right setting, then food would naturally come to it. That's why the birds of the air don't have to worry. That's what Jesus is communicating here. That the Father himself feeds them because they are found in the right place. Imagine if the monkey attempted to be inside the water and live there. The Father cannot feed the monkey there and it will not be the Father's fault. It will be the monkey's fault because it's not in its natural habitat. It's not there. So when Christ is telling you not to worry and he's saying seek ye first the kingdom, it's an assurance to you that if you are truly seeking him, there is nothing else in your life that you would actually need to worry about. Because he is the only person that you need. Amen. So the question is, what's the primary requirement for you? The primary requirement for you is total commitment to him. That's all you need. And this is also consistent in the Old Testament and in the New. Because total commitment will lead to transformation. And transformation will lead to revelation. And I will show you. But you see, of all those three things I mentioned, only one of them is your responsibility. The rest belong to God. Total commitment is your only responsibility. Can we look at the book of Exodus chapter 19? Exodus 19. I want to read... Three to six. And Moses went up unto the Lord, and the Lord called him unto called him out of the mountain, saying, Thou shalt say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings. And brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be 
a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. From this verse, what is the part that is for Israel? It's if you obey my voice and what? And keep my commandments. Every other thing that is going to happen is him that is responsible for doing it. He said, he, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Essentially, he's saying, I will make you this. I'm the one that will be responsible for transforming you into this. If you can what? Obey me and keep my commandments. And he says that he will transform you. For all the earth is what? Is mine. And he says that I would shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's the one that is going to do that. What you just need to do is to what? Obey his voice and keep his commandments. We see it in the words of Jesus to the first disciples he called. He said what? Drop your nets and follow me. And what will happen next? I will make you. The rest of the work is not on them. Their own is to what? Follow him. Consistently, total commitment. Follow me and I will do the rest. Is it not consistent with seek first the kingdom of God? Just follow me. I will do the rest. Whatever is going to happen after, I'm the one responsible for doing it. I will make you fishers of men. And this was before Jesus died. So then let's look at something that happened after Jesus had died. And that's in Romans 12, 1 to 2. So we looked at the Old Testament. We looked at part of the New, but that's before the New Covenant. Now the New Covenant is established in the book of Romans. And Paul is speaking here. And Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The only thing that is for you in those two verses is present your body as a living sacrifice. And do not be conformed to this world. You see, once you present your body and you are not conformed, that transformation of your mind is a natural side effect. If you present your body totally as a living sacrifice unto God, and you are not conformed to this world, like he says, if your conversation is not like of the world, and you've dedicated yourself totally to what? To him as a living sacrifice. Your mind will become transformed. And your life will prove his, his will. All of that is his own work. All the rest is his work. It's not yours. 
as long as you are on the altar as a living sacrifice, you can't help but have these things happen to you. I taught this a bit in um, the Wednesday Bible study. And I said the most dangerous thing about the living sacrifice is the living sacrifice can decide to stand up from the altar. <laughs> because the living sacrifice is still alive. So essentially, total commitment to God. Because unlike the sacrifices of old, once you kill the animal, it's dead, it's dead. And I said, I remember saying then that the altar represents God's presence. And the fire represents the Holy Spirit. He's the one that burns away the debris of our lives. He's the one that purifies us like gold. That's what scripture says. But the only person that can keep you on that altar is you. And a lot of times the problems that we have is that we stand up from the altar sometimes when the heat is too much. We leave his presence. Or we remove one part of our body from the altar. Maybe it's just our hand. And maybe your hand represents an aspect of your life that you have not put down. Because you are a living sacrifice. You're not dead. You're alive. You have a will. But it's still very clear that the only requirements from you is what? It's total commitment. And if you commit yourself totally to God, he would what? He would transform your life and bring revelation to your life and he will reveal you to people. You see, like I said, the greatest scam is the subject of purpose. Why is the subject of purpose the greatest scam? Because it has been taught that purpose is an event. That essentially a point will come in your life when you would be able to say that you have achieved and that is the biggest deceit of this age. What we have in our lives is milestones. There are moments that would come and there will be milestones in our lives. But purpose is till you expire. And purpose is more about your daily work with God than any milestone that you meet at any point. Let me give you an example. So, the virus that you are using to write right now, the manufacturers took time to what? To craft them and to make them and to put them together and make them what they are, right? And they made them what they were and somehow you bought it or maybe you saw it somewhere and you picked it up and now you are in service and you are using it to write. You are using it to write today. Does that mean that the Bible has fulfilled its purpose? Because it's not an event. So yes, you bought it. Yes, you know it's a Bible. And you picked it up and you are using it to write today. Let's say you use it to write tomorrow. It still works. But maybe next week you now pick it up. And you try to write, it doesn't work. You try again, it doesn't work. You try again, it doesn't work. What happens? Throw it away and buy another biro. <laughs> right? So essentially, that biro cannot be said to have fulfilled its purpose until the ink is what? It's finished. It's about the day to day. It's not about 
some milestone event. And the problem is that purpose has been taught to this generation as when you achieve something. That's why it's ambition. And unfortunately, this is the teaching that has crept into the church. And see, even if even those that teach about ministry, well, when you become a pastor, when you become a this, yes, now you are what's in your purpose. It's the day to day because if you walk with him day to day with total commitment, you will get to wherever the destination is. That is not for you to worry about. It is for him. And that's why we didn't start this by talking about activities. We started by talking about man's place in eternity. Because man's place in eternity is the most important thing that man needs. Everything else will fall in line. Or let's say you go to the market and you buy a pack of salt. And the people that worked on that salt did everything, processed it, packaged it the same way God has processed you and packaged you before you entered your mother's womb and dumped you on this earth. And you go and you buy the salt. And the first day, you, you cook with the salt and you, know, you can taste it, taste, taste it and the food is nice. Second day, you do the same thing. And one day you decide to cook and you put salt. When you are frying egg and you put salt and you taste it, nothing is there. And you put salt, you taste it again, nothing is there. You now pour like a handful and put your tongue and you don't taste anything. What are you going to do? You will throw the salt away and go and buy new salt. So just because you use that packet of salt to cook twice and you know the food was good, does not mean that that packet of salt has fulfilled its purpose. It's fulfilled its purpose when it finishes. It's when it finishes. So purpose is not an event. It's your entire life walking in total commitment with God. Trusting that he is going to do the rest. But we've been deceived to think differently. And sometimes... We pay so much attention to some characters in the Bible, forgetting that this principle that we are speaking about applied to them, but we don't see it in their lives. But there are some characters we don't even pay attention to. And God still did something in them. You know one of the most fascinating stories for me in the Bible? It's in the book of Acts chapter 1. And it's not really a story per se. It was when the disciples were to choose who was going to replace Judas. And the Bible says that there were two. That the lost, basically, they were the last people. But it was the criteria that Peter gave that really, really touches my heart. Because the criteria was that they have to be people that have been with them from the beginning. That have experienced everything up until that point. Yet, we did not know their names. Will we say they were not fulfilling purpose? Will we say that they were not following the master? What about Judas that followed the master? And we are seeing his name everywhere. They count him among the twelve. What was his end? Do we understand? And thank God that we at least we know the name of Matthias and we know the name of Joseph called Barabbas. But you know there were others there that they had to whittle down the number before he reached two of them. Meaning that the people that had been present with Jesus, following him steadily with their hearts from the beginning, were more than those twelve. Yet we don't know what they are called. And we don't need to know.
because some people will never be famous. But they will fulfill purpose because daily they are working with God in total commitment in their corner where you don't know their name. You don't know their church. You may never know their church. That's what life is. And thank God we know Matthias. At least we know him now. But after that moment, we don't even hear about the other guy. <laughs> Joseph Barabbas. Does that mean that his life ended? No. But we look at the life of the deacons. The job description of the deacons was to serve people food. Like their job description was welfare. I hope we know. Like on paper. That's what we read in the book of Acts chapter 6. That's what they were choosing for. Serve tables. Did we read that there was a special coronation ceremony for Philip among them? Did we read that one day the apostles called him and anointed him as an evangelist? No. We just read that all of a sudden, who moved him? The Holy Spirit just moved him somewhere. From where he was serving tables. And moved him to go and do work that nobody voted, nobody put any ballot entry, nobody picked him with hand. Moved him, did the work, the apostles heard, oh, he has done something. John and Peter came now and what baptized those people. And as the revival was going on there, the Holy Spirit moved him again <laughs> to another man, the eunuch from Ethiopia. Was, he, was there any ordination? Any coronation ceremony for his life? What he was appointed to do was to wait tables. He wasn't selected for some grand in court design. God just picked him because his daily work was totally committed to the cause and to the kingdom and to God. And God used him. Used him even till he was older. Because later on, when Paul was returning back to Jerusalem, on his journey back, we meet Paul in his house. And the Bible mentions that he had five daughters and five of them could prophesy. Meaning that he had raised his own family in the way of the Lord. Yes, he didn't read any, he didn't write any of the books in this Bible. Thank God we know his name. There are some people we will never know about. Read about Agabus. Agabus was a prophet mentioned just twice. And the two... The two times it was mentioned. It was mentioned to prophesy two of the most amazing and fundamental things that will happen in that time. And we don't hear of him again. The first time he was mentioned, he was mentioned because there was famine coming to the land. And he was the one that prophesied it. He was the one that told the church ahead of time. So that the church would now what? Gather up resources and prepare. And that's why they were sending resources to Jerusalem. From the churches in the Gentile world. Through Paul. It was Agabus that prophesied it. We don't know where he was. We just know that he was a prophet in the church. That's the first time we see him. And the next time we see him, 
was when Paul was about to return to Jerusalem and he was in the house and he picked up Paul's belt and tied it around his hands and said, whoever owns this belt, when the person enters Jerusalem, this is how they are going to tie the person's hands. Prophesying that Paul is definitely going to get arrested when he enters Jerusalem. Those are the two events that we read of him. We don't know anything else about him. But thank God we know his name. Will we say that that one did not fulfill his purpose? And that's the problem. We've been taught to look at this thing from the angle of ambition. You get so obsessed with your job. You get so obsessed with your family. You get so obsessed with your relationship. Like That's the point. All of those things are under the category of all other things to be added unto you. And that does not mean that you should not work. That does not mean that you should not make a living or earn a living. That's not the point. The point is total commitment would reset these things and put them in their proper place naturally if only you trust him. If you do, he will edit some things. He will change some things. He will change your approach to some things. All these things are not in any... You don't need to go to any um, book to read it. You don't need to read any 72 steps or 54 steps. He will just do it by himself because that's what he does. That's what he does. That's how you find your place. It's in the daily. It's in the what? In the daily. Yesterday I was teaching a beautiful broken and I'm going to close with this. And I said that the church today has become a collection of programs. A collection of conferences, of seminars, of revivals, of retreats. So people are hopping from one retreat to another, from one revival to another. Oh, they are doing this one here. Oh, let me go. They finish. Oh, they are doing this one next. Every, every year, some people go to nothing less than 12 per month. Because every time there is something, just hopping from one revival, oh, there's a seminar here, oh, they are teaching this, oh, they are teaching that. And the church has become a collection of this because they know. So they organize it because they know you will come and there will be offering. And we've reduced the importance of the daily work because the thing is the daily work is the hardest to do. Because it's the one that takes the most discipline. You can psych yourself up to go for a one-week retreat and come back and your life never changes. And next month, you go for another one-week seminar, healing conference here. That's not the Christian life. That's not the church. The most difficult thing is the daily. It's the one that takes consistency and discipline. When there's no noise, when there's nothing in quotes special. And the way I explain this is how I'm going to explain it now. One of the things that you learn as a project manager is that you have projects and you have operations. So operations are the day-to-day -day running of your company or your firm or your business. Project is always temporary. A project has a start date and an end date. And at the end of a project, 
what you have are things you call deliverables. The deliverables are supposed to flow into the day-to-day to make the day-to-day better. So a company would run a project because they want to achieve so-so-and-so and they want the company to improve in so-so-and-so. So maybe a company wants to build a website. That website is a project, the building, because it will start one day to end another day. But when the website is done, there are deliverables that that website will give to enhance the day-to-day of the company. And that's what programs are. Whether it's a retreat or a conference or a seminar, if it does not add value to your daily work with God, it's useless. If you're not able to take something out of a retreat, even if you had healing and God healed you somewhere, it's your day-to-day work with God that maintains that healing. Because the devil will bring doubt into your mind and tell you you are not truly healed. (laughs) Right? After all, even when Jesus healed people, he healed a blind man, they were telling him that, are you sure you were blind? (laughs) So why won't it happen to you? If you are not able to transfer something to your daily work, that program is useless. Retreats are good. Seminars are fine. I have no problem with them, but they are not the Christian life. They are not your way to purpose at all. And the church has become a collection of these things, hot topics. Ignoring totally and completely what you do with him daily. Because that's the secret. Because if you walk with him daily, you are guaranteed of getting to the place that he wants you to get at every milestone till you expire from this earth. And it's only when you have expired like that barrel that you can say that's what you have fulfilled your purpose. You've run the race. It's not an event. It's not one day that will come. And that's how you find your place. Amen. Can we rise up?